Father, this morning we lift up our prayers to you. We lift up our requests, our needs. We lift up those around us who are hurting and struggling. We lift up those we know who need to know your love or to know it more fully. We bring you our sins and our confessions, confident knowing that your Son is at your right hand, praying and interceding for us. We give you, Father, thanks for sending your Son for his life and teachings and death and resurrection. We thank you for the Spirit that you have poured out into your community of believers. We pray that that same Spirit would be alive and at work here in this room today. We welcome you to, to teach us and transform us. It's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have one on you, um, there might be a hard black Bible underneath a seat around you. We are in like part 9 or part 10 of a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7, which is great timing. Okay, so we're going to end Matthew 5, the first chapter today. So in two or three years, we'll be ready to uh, start a new sermon series. Um, We have a rule here at the church, or at least I like to make this up before I preach passages like this, which is you can't get mad at Pastor Mike for just saying what Jesus said. Okay, so we come today to a pretty radical passage, probably the most uh, difficult passage for Christians to understand and accept, probably where there's most debate um, over how this directly applies to our life. Uh, before Elephant in the Room began this last Thursday, a, a time where we invite two people to debate a controversial topic and have Q&A with other people, I got a message from somebody who saw the event online. I don't, think, I don't think he lived in Texas. And he, he messaged me and he said, who would you invite to debate the Apostle Paul? And I thought I kind of knew what he was getting at, but I, I wrote back, I don't really understand the question. If you can reframe it for me. I'll, I'll try to give you an answer. And he said, why do we have to debate things when we have the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Paul right in front of us? When will the church ever get around to accept just that? And so I answered him. I said, I think your question has two parts to it. So I'll answer it in two parts. If Jesus decided to pay our church a visit, if he got on the podium on the stage, there would, no, would be no one debating him. I'd be in the front row taking Notes, asking lots of questions. If the Apostle Paul decided to pay us a visit, again, we would put no one else on the stage. We probably wouldn't even sing that Sunday. We'd just listen, take notes, ask questions. Might have more questions for the Apostle Paul, since his works have been read more differently in different uh, interpretations. Um, But I said, so that's first, right? We obviously wouldn't. But it leads to the second point, which is that they're not personally here. And they're probably not ever going to pay a visit to preach in person Although I invite Jesus to come, I think that would be a great church growth strategy. I think we'd be packed out. Um, I said the, the real issue here is, right, interpretation. We have the teachings, we have the letters, we have the writings, but there's a big difference in what something says versus what it means. What it means is the interpretation. The same sins, the same passage um, can mean lots of different things. It's surely you've experienced this in life. You've sent a text message and they interpret it one way. And you said, oh, that's not what I meant by that. And because interpretation has to happen when we read or listen to things, there'll always be different viewpoints on it. 
And the key is not to get frustrated over the fact that people believe differently. The key is to dialogue in unity, to interpret the scriptures together with one another so that you bring an insight and you bring some experience. And we're not just doing this in a vacuum. And the key also is to be clear about why we're interpreting the way we are. That's usually where we get stuck. What assumptions am I making that causes me to interpret this? What other scripture am I thinking about that causes me to interpret this? And once we can get those cards on the table, then we can kind of have a more productive dialogue. Um, So again, we come to the end of Matthew chapter 5, the sixth out of this pattern of six theses and antitheses, where Jesus says, you've heard it said, and quotes an Old Testament passage, and he now says, but I tell you. We've noticed Jesus is not contradicting the Old Testament. He's pushing it forward. He's saying, let's go, let's go farther towards the heart of God for creation. We come to the last and most climatic. Um, it is one of the most radical of Jesus' moral directives, if not the most radical. And, and really what he seems to be doing here, as we read, we'll, we'll see. Last week we talked about retaliation. And Jesus commands his people, do not resist the evil one, the person who's harassing you or persecuting you. And I argued, it's a pretty common argument. What he really means there is don't resist violently. Um, So we came up with kind of a, I came up and presented at least with this idea of like civil disobedience, right? We might protect people, but we just don't do it violently. This nonviolent protections, nonviolent resistance. And he seems to just broaden this concept now. Um, So Jesus is teaching this to a group of people on a mountaintop. That's why it's called Sermon on the Mount. And you can probably imagine him seeing people's faces. And you can probably imagine him seeing the reactions to the last thing he taught. Seeing some people get angry, seeing a lot of people getting confused, seeing people start to whisper to each other. And so it's, it's very likely, I think, that Jesus, seeing this reaction, said, okay, let's put the foot on the pedal and really break this down for everyone, make it much more broad, um, make it much more clear. And so we'll read today from Matthew 5. Um, verse 43 to 48. Jesus says this in the Gospel of Matthew, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. He breaks the pipe of churches that he loves we had a water leak. Um, that's not in there, though. Um, for if you love those who love you, verse 46, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, we've seen in these um, patterns, you have the you have heard, but I say, and I've argued that there's a third step here. Jesus gives us um, small kind of transformational initiative, small steps to take towards getting there. Um, it's still here in this passage, but it's reversed. So the transforming initiative comes second, and then afterwards comes Jesus' recognition of the vicious cycle. So you've got traditional righteousness, Jesus' diagnose, uh, diagnosis of the problem, and then transforming initiatives. Um, Here's the traditional righteousness he presents. You've heard it said, you shall love your enemy and hate your neighbor. So the phrase love your neighbor comes from the Old Testament. Leviticus 19, 18. It seems to be a very important verse for Jesus and thus for the rest of the New Testament authors and early church. 
we remember Jesus says the whole law, all of the scriptures can be summed up in one command. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus, in multiple places, refers to Leviticus 19.18. He seems to pull it out of the darkness. It wasn't quoted a lot before that and make it central in his teachings. So that's where that, that command is coming from. Here's the problem. There's no command in the Old Testament to hate your enemy. And so people have wondered, where is that coming from? Um, some have argued um, that it is just an implicit thing you find in certain Old Testament scriptures. Um, so while there's never the command, hate your enemy, there are some Old Testament passages that seem like they're suggesting it's normal or right to hate your enemy. Um, there's a passage in the Old Testament, the Psalms, where they're praying for the um, children of their enemies to be destroyed in a very violent way. Um, there's, there's passages in the Old Testament that seems just God uh, hates our enemies the same way we hate our enemies. Um, there's passages where God destroys our enemies. Um, so someone says he's just kind of bringing together the implicit assumption people take from the Old Testament. Um, others have, have said he's referring to specific groups. So just like there were Pharisees and Sadducees in the first century, um, there were a group called the Zealots and the Essenes. And these groups, like some of the Pharisees, not all of them, wanted violent revolution against Rome. They were waiting on God to deliver them, to rescue them again, like he did when they were slaves in Egypt. And they walked through the Red Sea, and God destroyed the army of Pharaoh. They drowned behind them. They went into the Promised Land. In the first century, Jews were saying things like this, we're in the promised land, but we're still slaves. This evil empire, Rome, is still over us. And so we're waiting on God to act and act decisively, to rescue us, and in particular, to rescue us for the last time, to bring in this final age where there's no more evil, there's no more evil empires to take us over in the future. It's just the glory of God across the entire earth. It's new creation, it's life. And so they, they naturally interpreted it in terms of the Exodus story, right? Um, in Exodus story, what had to happen for them to get to the promised land? Well, their enemies had to be killed. And they clearly identified the Romans and the Gentiles as their enemies. And so they said, well, if God's not going to drown them in this dramatic, miraculous fas- fashion, maybe he's calling us to, to pick up the sword, to go in to fight. Much of Jesus' teaching seems to be pushing against this. Um, others have suggested hating your neighbor. That phrase here just comes from common sense. That, that tendency to love your neighbor and to hate your enemy seems to be as common as skin is. It was there in the first, in the, the first century when the New Testament was written. It was there in ancient times. It's still here today. This just seems to be kind of our reaction, our human nature after the fall. Um, We keep those who want to hurt us or be mean to us in in whatever sense away from us. And if so needed, we'll we'll put whatever pressure we need to on them. And then for those who are nice to us, for those who are close to us, we rightly and gladly give them love. So Jesus, you've heard that was said. And if we skip a little bit out of order, um, the vicious cycle comes in these forms of these questions. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have Don't even the tax collectors do that. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? The vicious cycle is, hey, if you don't do anything different from this, what separates you from anybody else? What will end all the hate and all the violence in the world? What progress can be made towards God's 
ideal kingdom of peace. If you're going to just stick in this cycle, you're going to love your neighbors and hate your enemies. It's going to cause them to hate you and love their neighbors. Jesus makes, I think, kind of a funny, kind of a convicting point, which is, look, you consider some of the worst people in the world, tax collectors, sinners, you consider them these really awful, far away from you people, but you're doing the exact same thing in terms of the centrality of love, which is my message. You're doing the exact same thing that they are. And then this transforming initiative we find here in the form of a command, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So again, he's not contradicting the Old Testament, love your enemies and, well, we don't know about anyone else. He's pushing it forward. So we've we brought love this far. Let's push it forward a little bit so that it includes all of humanity. So we start to see the kingdom of God come in more power um, and, and more reality. Notice that the command to love your enemies is not a, just a negative command. He doesn't say, don't be mean to your enemies. He actually gives us a positive action. We think of love as like a generic feeling, right? Jesus thinks of love as concrete actions. You love somebody by doing something loving to them, not just by feeling something in your heart. He doesn't say stay away from your enemies. He doesn't say avoid your enemies. He says do something positive. Do something loving to them. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you're being persecuted, don't just go to court and get a lawyer. Don't just try to counter sue. He says, why don't you pray for them? Why don't you go to God on their behalf, that he would bless them, that he would open up their eyes, that he would, he would convert them and change them. Now, to, to get a better sense of what's going on here in Matthew, I'd like to take you to Luke chapter 6. So Luke chapter 6 has what we call the Sermon on the Plain, which is very much like um, Matthew's version. It's a little bit shorter, and it actually highlights nonviolence, um, love, enemy love, as the more central command of the Sermon on the Mount. So if you were to place Matthew 5 through 7 on one side and place Luke 6 on the other, um, Sermon on the Mount, he's on a mountaintop. Sermon on the Plain, he's on a plane. If you were in my classroom, we'd have printouts side by side. And I'd say, I'm going to give everyone 15 minutes, 20 minutes to go through and mark everything they can find. What's the same? What's different? What's reordered? And then we'll talk about what this might mean. It's pretty clear um, that Luke uh, makes a big emphasis, perhaps in all of the Gospels, on enemy love as being the defining character of um, the, the church, uh, of those who would follow Jesus. Um, as we can see here in Luke 27, in the Sermon on the Plain, Luke 6, 27, we'll hear some of the same things. Um, it might be in a little bit different order, um, but he'll actually give us some more instruction on these positive things to do to those who are our enemies, who seek to hate us. He says, I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them." If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that of you? For even sinners do that as well. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what kind of credit do you think that you're getting? 
But love your enemies, verse 35, and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For the Most High is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Um, now, this is a common thing that happens in the Gospels. They, um, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they'll have some of the same material. It'll be changed a little bit. And there's lots of questions about this. Um, did one borrow from the other? Um, what's going on here? Um, there seems to be a, kind of an obvious answer that one might give, which is this. Jesus is an itinerant preacher, which means he's saying the same thing over and over and over and over again. If this is core to his message, this would be something the disciples had heard in different times and at different contexts. So it's possible this was just one way Jesus put the message. He condenses a bit. He switches things up a little bit. He combines the non-retaliation with the enemy love. Um, Lindsay's traveled with me as I've spoken. I'm giving the same messages, same messages. She knows not one of them is ever actually the same. Some of them are more funny than others, but most of them are pretty funny. Some of them, I might leave out a section. Maybe I forgot it, or maybe I thought it didn't apply to this group. They wouldn't understand it or receive it well. Sometimes I'll add on something. Maybe it just came to my head, or again, maybe I'd plan that out to, to make a better point here or there. Um, I think this is kind of an, an, an obvious common sense answer we might give to why are these, these passages a little bit different, but mostly the same. He's, he's going all over the place, all over Galilee, village to village to village, preaching these things. What we can learn from Luke's um, version of the sermon is um, twofold, although there's a lot we can learn. Um, the first is in terms of the positive actions we're called to do to those who harass and persecute us. And then at the very end of the passage, he has this command that is in Matthew. In Matthew, it says, be perfect, even as your father is perfect. Watch in Luke's gospel, probably the same sermon where he says, be merciful, even as your father is merciful. So we might, when we go to interpret what it means to be perfect, might let Luke help us out here. Maybe what Jesus is getting at with those words is something closer to um, mercy and grace than it is to like some kind of moral perfection or sinlessness. Um, so we have, have this in Luke. Again, at the very beginning, we get a group of positive actions. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray to those who abuse you. Again, notice these, these things we're commanded to do to, to people who are our enemies or on the other side of the fence. Pray for them, bless them, do good to them. This is a lot harder command than just to leave your enemies alone. This is a lot harder command to just say, don't be violent and hateful towards your enemies. He says, no, you're called to be with them, be for them, to go out of your way to be good to them. In the sermons we, we get here in the Gospels, there's no why in terms of purpose for this. Paul rephrases the same command in one of his letters in Romans and gives us his own version of why, which is because that will make them really upset. <laughs> It'll be like burning coals on their head, right? Ah, they're nice to me. How can I keep doing this? Um, we get these, these positive commands. Um, if I were to summarize it, I'd say this. Enemy love, as Jesus teaches it, is about committing to reacting with generosity to acts of evil. We act in generosity and kindness when someone puts darkness and hate and hurt our way. And this is, again, 
pretty radical in society. As you turn back with me to Matthew chapter 5, I want you to notice here. So next week, we will get into the nitty-gritty of modern interpretation. So um, I'm purposely just doing one sermon on a few topics. They could all have their own sermon series, um, but we'll hit on just war. Um, We'll hit on uh, self-defense, and we'll hit on the death penalty. I think three pretty obvious questions people have, and we'll touch on them. I'm purposely doing that in one sermon, because my goal here is not to um, dig into these really kind of murky waters. It's just to preach the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Before we can get there, though, we have to recognize what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying. Chris taught me after he got his master's that really all they taught him was that Jesus usually means what he says. <clears throat> but I didn't believe him, so I paid a bunch of money, got my master's, figured out pretty much the same thing. But most of history is Christians trying to wiggle themselves out of doing what Jesus asked them to do, as commanded them to do. Especially in the Sermon on the Mount, it's just a history of reinterpretation, of adding qualifications and rationalizations. So let me say very gently, without getting into the, these murky waters, which I'll step into next week, that there are no exception clauses in the Sermon on the Mount. They're not there. Unless I have a really bad Bible, they missed a passage. This is a full-on, broad command. Jesus does not imagine, at least in these passages, that there would be any situation in which you should react differently to your enemies. So very gently. He does not say, love your enemies unless they are going to kill you. It's not there. He doesn't say, love your enemies unless they're going to kill people you love or that you know. It's, it's not there. And he doesn't say, love your enemies unless they're going to kill innocent people that you don't know but want to protect. Now, those things might be true. They may or may not be true. But we often bring these common sense assumptions to Jesus' text. So let's just acknowledge, before we even get into those questions, right, Jesus here does not say anything that would exclude those situations. They may be excluded. There may be a good argument to to make some qualifications to Jesus' commands. But that's a different thing than just seeing and sitting under the teaching of Jesus today. If we want to make those qualifications, and many do, for good reasons, not just because they want to wiggle out of obedience, we're going to have to have other scriptures probably, really sound logic. But I think before we can do that, we just have to acknowledge um, the burden of proof is on us to provide a good, solid, scriptural, Christ-centered reason um, to, to find an exception for any of these. It's interesting, you know, there's a different social situation for these early disciples, for the early church, than it is for us. They were able to accept these commands um, and so the enemy love command is, is a really central command in the rest of the New Testament. Um, it's brought up a lot. It makes up kind of the whole kind of background for certain books. The early church refers to this command really more than they refer to a lot of other stuff. They seem to have seen the pattern. Like this is an important thing, if not the most important. Because it goes right in there with love, right? Love God, love your neighbors, the, the, the greatest commandments. And who your neighbors are, they, well, they include your enemies. You don't exclude people when you start saying, okay, I love my, my neighbors. The early church thought this was very, very important. They referred to it a lot. 
And here's why I think they were able to, to accept this in a more gentler and easier way than often we are able to accept this. We're in different social situations. You and I, for the most part, are privileged. For the most part, we're safe and protected. For the most part, we've got enough money to live, at least in the greater Houston area. I was talking to someone from a little podunk town in Texas, and they're talking on how much money they can live off of. And I was like, what in the world? And then we quickly realized, well, it's a different thing to live in Sugar Land than to live in this town. The cost of living, right, rises gradually. Um, and, and we're living as people who can probably expect, unless something goes wrong, to live for a fairly long time. 60, 70, 80 unless something kind of wrong happens to us. For the earliest disciples, though, they were an oppressed people who could die any day, no matter what. And when they saw Jesus' command to take up your cross, that the definition of following me for Jesus, take up your cross and follow me. They heard that very literally. They knew what the cross was. Jesus saying, if you want to come, let's go to our execution. And most of them died on a cross. In the early church, again, most of them, many of them, different times, different places, actually died for their faiths. It's a sense of martyrdom, I think, that makes it easier to accept commands that seem to make us vulnerable to, to violence and to death. Uh, I was reading a, a, a work on martyrdom that was very interesting a few years ago. They made this argument. It said there aren't lots of Christians and a few martyrs, people who die for their faith. Actually, all Christians are martyrs. The difference between Christians in terms of expressing their status as martyrs is not between are they or are they not, but how it expresses itself. So the guy said, um, all Christians are martyrs. We're all called to give up our lives. Even if that's kind of figurative for us, but to deny ourselves, to obey Jesus. We're all called to die to ourselves and to live unto the Lord and, and really, it's just a matter of degrees. Some people will one day be put in a situation where they actually have to die for the Lord. But that's really not that different than every other Christian. It's a little more dramatic. It's a little more impressive. But really, we're all in the same category here. So if you accept the fact that following Jesus is going to mean you are vulnerable and you are perhaps going to be persecuted like Jesus was persecuted, you are likely to, to want to add less qualifications to this. Um, and so I think the sense of martyrdom makes a big difference here. We notice, again, that Jesus is the interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount. And Luke, pray for your, uh, the one who's hating you. Um, who's the one who prays for those who are persecuting him? It's Jesus on the cross. Do you remember this? He prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. What an amazing prayer. And the early church takes this as a pattern. Stephen, when he's dying, says, Father, forgive them, for they know what they, not what they do. Early church fathers, as they went to their death, said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus is the concrete interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is the one who prays for those who curse him, who bless those who um, are harmful, who does good to those who would be maybe considered as enemies. 
we're given a, a reason, not in purpose or pragmatics, um, but in, in, in terms of our relationship to the Lord. Um, he says, both in Matthew and in Luke, um, in verse 45, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. This looks to many people like a conditional statement. Love your enemies, which is what God's character is, so that you can be called children of the Most High, the child of God. I'd like to suggest it's not so much a, a, a reward or, or any type of earning a status. Um, you know, I think we read the Scriptures correctly when we acknowledge that all who believe and follow Jesus um, can gladly rejoice that they are adopted into God's family. The Holy Spirit indwells them, creating our, in our hearts this celebration that He is our Father. We, we have been adopted into the love that He has for Jesus. We are His children, sons and daughters. But, but that it might be a, a term of identification. Jesus places enemy love in the deeper context of God's own character. Rain comes on the just and the unjust. Sun comes on the just and the unjust. God wants all to repent and for none to perish. And he then acts that out as literally the child of God. And then he, he passes it on to us and says, this is what it means to be the child of the Father, to put these ideas, these concepts into practice. His summary command here, he says, be perfect as your Father is perfect. It all depends on what the word perfect here means. Um, I've talked about this before. Anytime we see this word perfect in the Scriptures, this is probably a bad English translation. Um, the word used for, for perfect in Greek was very rarely meant to mean what it does to us. That concept really didn't really exist to them in terms of like sinlessness. We think of perfection as like this impossible thing that we can never attain. Um, the word itself is more robustly interpreted as like maturity or completion. The word comes from the root word for the end, the goal. It's to mature. It's to come to the end. It's to be what you were created to be. For Luke, it's to be merciful, to be shaped into the character of um, the Father and of his Son. Which I think actually helps us out a little bit here today. So here's what I think you and I should take away from this passage today before we start diving into any other deeper things is we should take away the fact that if Jesus calls us to love our enemy, it doesn't just mean we make like very public stances against war or the death penalty or whatever that might be. It means the person in your household who you don't like, they seem to go after you intentionally. It means that you stop reacting negatively to them. It means that you don't just avoid them. It means that you sit down and plan out, how can I bless the mess out of this person? How can I be as gracious and loving and generous and kind as possible to that person? It means for the person in your um, company where you work, who just seems to have it out for you, how can you bless, how can you proactively be good, show the grace and love that God has for all to that person? And if you, if you start to adopt that mindset, these very little steps, what you'll find, I think, is one day your character will be formed in a way that it's kind of natural to you. It's like a, an instinct to you. 
second nature. Um, I would argue this is how kind of we form our behavior decisions. Uh, it's called virtue ethics. Aristotle said, excellence is not one action, it's a habit. You become what you are doing. Um, so if I'm lying today and I keep lying, I'll probably end up having lying as the second nature. I might rightly be called a liar. I would argue that these early Christians who had these dramatic martyrdom stories, that that wasn't the first time they decided to not respond with, with evil or, or malintent. I would guess from the beginning, they're having to work on this with people in their village, people close around them, with their church communities. And that what happens when you get to those dramatic moments is all of a sudden you react in a way that you would not have reacted 10 years ago. You might not even understand why at first. Like, wait a minute, why is this my instinct? And it's because you, you started where you were. I'd even further argue that it's easier to take public stands for these big theoretical ideas than it is to actually live this out in your own life. I can attest to this. Um, the, most, um, the most positive reception, the most uh, in terms of things I've been able to publish academic societies and be able to speak at peer-reviewed papers that I've done is on just war and, and nonviolence. And we'll talk about that a little bit next week. Um, let me tell you this. It's really easy to grandstand in a paper and to argue that we're not doing war the way we should do war. People have forgotten what it even means. Let's look back at when they started just war and look at all the reasons they had wrong intentions for this. That's really easy That's just a matter of some time, sitting down and writing a paper, then adding some rhetorical flourishes so you seem very impressive. A lot of people do that. You know what's hard? To go home and to do that on a small-scale step. It's really easy to talk big. I've done it. It's really hard to live it out small. I've been there as well. These small steps are, are where we've got to start. And before we add any qualifications or exceptions to what Jesus is saying, I would, I would ask us to first just sit under this. Don't immediately come up with, with some qualification. Again, like I said, there may be, but that's for another day. That's looking at other passages, thinking through other things. Before we get there, we just have to simply acknowledge what Jesus is saying here. He is... Um, giving us this command to, to be perfect, to complete, to be mature. And I, I'd suggest that comes in small steps of faithfulness, which I say small, you probably know as well, are really hard and difficult. I've had some people in my life who have felt like they were my enemies. I felt like went after me unfairly, treated me horribly made big decisions on my part that were not in my best interest. And as you can attest, some of those people I've forgiven and I still hang out with now. Most people who know me really, really well, the inner circle, know probably a name I haven't forgiven, a name that shall not be spoken. If I knew that he was going to be somewhere, he or she, who knows, I wouldn't go. I wouldn't trust myself. Like, wise choices. But maybe one day, if I keep practicing, who knows? Maybe I'll love him too. Or she. (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) 
to, to live this out, we, we really, I think, just have to answer two questions. The first is, who is our enemy? Who is your enemy? Which sounds kind of dramatic. I would hope that if you had like a list you kept of like enemies, that you're maybe taking things a little too personally. My arch nemesis. And because we don't usually have those lists, it kind of often goes unmissed. You have to really sit down and think about it. Who is it who I think is just really mean to me? Who is it who, who might be considered someone who's harassing me or persecuting me? And the second question is, how do I turn them from my enemy into a neighbor? What will I do? What can I do to just dump grace and love and kindness and generosity on them? With no, no promise how they'll react, right? Sometimes you get major conversions this way. There's lots of stories of big, buff gang members trying to rob someone on the street who are Christian. And they're like, whoa, hold on. No one needs to get hurt. You, you need some money? You can have all the money I've got. What do you need? What's going on? And they start sobbing, right? They're like, well, let me pray for you. What's, what's going on? Um, often it's when, that's how I think lots of us were saved, when we realized that as God's enemies, he still loved us and gave his life for us. That's when we're most vulnerable to accepting love. When someone should react to us negatively, like everyone else does, but yet they don't. What is that? And I like it. But there's no promises here, right? Plenty of people do this on the street and then get hurt. You can't control that. All you can control is what, what might I do? Again, I think the street example is still too extreme. In your, in your home, at your workplace, in your schools, in your, your neighborhoods, what can you do to, to turn your enemies into to neighbors? I think the implication of the command is God's hope that one day enemies as a category will be eliminated and that the Prince of Peace, Jesus the Son, will have a kingdom of peace, a people of peace. And I would suggest that if we are too used to a kingdom of conflict and violence and distrust and tension, that we might find it hard to live in a kingdom of peace. I'd rather much now try to live in a kingdom of peace, try to work towards more peace so that I might be more comfortable living in the world that Jesus and his Father desire. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for the scriptures that we have that do record and, and, and give us the teachings of your Son. I thank you for the grace you've allowed us to have in terms of unity and disagreement, that we can read things differently and still be together. We can benefit from one another. I pray that you'd help all of us, not even in this just one command, but in all of your teachings to try to humbly sit under them, to try to see what that feels like, what that reveals to you. I pray that in all things, Father, you would help us to work towards and practice peace, to expect peace, to bring peace, to make peace, 
so that we might reflect the character of your Son and your character as well. It's the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we pray these things. Amen.